essentials for when you're out doing karaoke because it's a popular thing to do when it's Halloween. Only bops. You can't pick a deep cut off of Fiona Apple unless it's criminal. No, you can't do it. You have to make sure everybody can be in the place and enjoy the song that you're singing as well. Because you're not going for a record deal here. You're just going for the enjoyment, the camaraderie, everybody around along that line. The song needs to be upbeat. No instrumental breaks. Can't be standing up there just doing nothing. And then to the third key of success. Gotta have a little showmanship. I was up there with the Jazz Digital team, and if you saw it on Twitter, you can look on Twitter and find our costumes for what we showed up to Halloween. Chippendales, singing Working for the Weekend, may not have been my time to be the guy to shine. I was just providing the vocals, but the Jazz Digital team provided the showmanship. Whipped cream on top of the waffle. Three essentials to being successful at karaoke. If you agree with the karaoke rules, make sure to like, subscribe, help others find the podcast itunes google play stitcher and spotify it's round ball roundup episode 9 utahjazz.com jp chunga after a couple of successful outings for the utah jazz first against the suns 96 to 95 and then the clippers 110 to 96 in the midweek one wasn't a looker and the Suns game did show the stick-to-itiveness of this jazz team able to get through 62 combined free throws from both sides. Utah needed Donovan Mitchell down the stretch, and Boyan Bogdanovich during the entire game was providing something. It came down to a free throw, and Donovan Mitchell sank it. Those Suns deserve their moniker of being pesky, of being a tough out, of all of those cliches. They earned it on Monday against this team, and I'm sure they're going to keep it going so long as it's early in the season. I like Javon Carter taking Patrick Beverly's energy and continuing it after they had beaten the Clippers over the weekend. Ultimately, it showed something from Donovan Mitchell that he was able to get to the free throw line on the final play of the game that could be a touchstone when it comes to the growth of him in year three. Because what does he need to do? He needs to be more efficient. He needs to be more willing to find that contact in the paint. And he found it on the very last possession of the entire ball game. Quinn Snyder trusts Donovan with the ball in his hands late, and he delivered with that game. Then they took on the artists who were dressed up as the Clippers on Wednesday, and no Kawhi Leonard. He took the day off due to load management. And this won't be a luxury that LA will have on Sunday when these two teams square off in the Staples Center. Because realistically, these are two teams that might be battling for each other when it comes to playoff positioning. Tiebreakers. It comes down to records against opponents. And right now, Utah has the 1-0 advantage against the Clippers. That team is incredibly limited when they don't have Kawhi when it's just Lou Williams going offensively for that team. They kept it close at the break, but then you saw Mike Conley break out, and he needed it. Tim McMahon had it in his preview of the game. He tells of Mike Conley shouting out a play during the preseason that Quinn Snyder's system just doesn't have. It's a play that he ran in Memphis. It's that familiarity, 12 years in one city, that he's still trying to deal with. But Mountain Mike came out in the third quarter, 18 points over that time. That 29 that he scored, compare that to the first four games where he scored 31 points on 9 of 45 shooting. He was getting the chance from the vivid Smart Home Arena crowd, 
and he felt it. Man, I've never experienced that before in you know, 13 years of playing basketball, and um, especially October 30th. You know, that was um, that's unique. It was special. Uh, I could tell they were feeling like I was. You know, they were they were waiting and had a lot of energy built up and um, you know, just emotional. So uh, it was great. It was great to feel that. How quickly he adjusts and gets into the mold alongside Donovan Mitchell can take this team to really threatening for the number one seed in the West. Team's completely different, though, without Kawhi. Against the Spurs, saw how he was able to break out. And against the Jazz on Wednesday, L.A. posted season lows in points, three-point makes, assists, just offensive categories that they're usually good against. They were not when it came to that team without the claw. Checking in ahead, Friday against the Kings, who right now are in the midst of a really poor run. 0-5, their 0-4 mark was the first since 2008 for this franchise. They haven't been in the playoffs in 13 years, and after all the gains that they had last season under Dave Yeager, a little bit of a step back for Luke Walton. They played at the bottom of pace, 29th offensive rating, 27th defensive rating. If you're looking at a key for this one, I think you have to see where Utah goes when it comes to their pace. Because right now, according to Cleaning the Glass, the offense is playing in half-court sets 82% of the time. Now, what does that number mean? It means you're going against a set defense, you're playing and making it harder to get easy buckets. Going out in transition and scoring on the fast break leads to high-priority, high-percentage plays. Playing against that set defense, even if it's not even a good defense, even if it's just average, it helps the opponent recognize what you're doing offensively. Now, even so, Utah is playing at a 10th best half-court points per 100 plays, according to Cleaning the Glass, on Friday. They've been efficient when it comes to those plays, but getting out into transition with all the space that you should be afforded with the new additions in the offseason, it can help to see that type of wrinkle enter this offense. Jazz's best offensive performance this entire year came against this Kings team last week at the Viv. They posted 113 points, defensively only gave up 81, and with this team not having Marvin Bagley again, Jazz could put the Kings at 0-6. Then, before the next episode of Round Ball Roundup, Clippers on Sunday, and same key that I brought up on Monday, got to take advantage when it's beyond the starters, because we saw how limited that team can be when Kawhi's not on the floor. This is going to sure itself out once they get Paul George, and they can balance out those times where Kawhi's resting and PG is out and the claws in. As it stands now, and being able to play them in this moment, they are vulnerable. News before we talk to Jonathan Abrams. Joel Embiid is suspended two games before the Jazz take on the Sixers on Wednesday. He'll be available for that matchup because they've got the Blazers and Suns in between now and then. I know all of our eyes were on the Jazz and the Clippers on Wednesday. That might have been the fifth thing to happen on NBA Twitter. Hashtag this league was going crazy because of that. What's the word? Andy, take it away. Kerfuffle. That's right. Carl Anthony Towns going at it, and Ben Simmons bringing his calming arms into the fold. Two of the best teams in the Eastern Conference are coming into Vivint Smart Home Arena next week with Philly and Milwaukee. We'll have you covered online at utahjazz.com. Now, 
let's get to this conversation with Bleacher Report's Jonathan Abrams. He's a veteran reporter of the NBA. He gave Donovan Mitchell the Abrams treatment, a profile from really one of the masters at this craft. We got into why he chose Donovan Mitchell as one of his subjects and what he learned about the Utah Jazz in his visit in Salt Lake City. Highly recommend reading the piece on Bleacher Report because Jonathan gets to the core of the Jazz's young star. When we come back, Jonathan Abrams. So I think it's just a conversation before the season starts with with my editor. We're looking at candidates who can have breakout years, who are kind of on the verge of possibly becoming all-stars, taking their teams deeper into the playoffs every Every season, there's a couple candidates, right? You, you look around the league and you canvas a league and you kind of see who you want to spotlight in case they're going to break out during this season. And Donovan Mitchell was certainly one of those candidates. Where do you remember first seeing Donovan get onto the scene and getting onto the attention of, of people like you who are looking from a more national perspective? Well, I mean, I think his rookie season was a thing that kind of blew everybody away. Uh, the stretch when the Jazz had that run and he was in the, the dunk contest and you could see he just really came into this league primed and ready. You know, <laughs> I live in Charlotte where they're really uh, bemoaning the fact that, you know, they with a lot of other teams didn't have the foresight to, to draft Donovan a couple years ago. For us, we know Donovan as a guy who acts years beyond his age, so wise your story starts with him acting his age and, and being sort of that teenager, blowing off his mom, Nicole, and injury stunning his rise up the recruiting rankings. What made that anecdote stick out for you? So it was one of those things that I talked to Donovan about. It's, you know, I, I even mentioned this to him. I'm like, man, I feel like you've already had a whole career, right? You've been, you've led your team into the playoffs. You've, you've won a playoff round. You've played internationally. You've been through ups and downs in this league already. It feels like you've already had uh, a whole NBA career and just two NBA seasons. And it's like, you came into this league and you seemed like you were beyond your age. When was a time when you felt like you weren't acting your age or when was a moment you kind of felt like you turned it around? And it's, it's interesting because both him and his mom, uh, Nicole, both pinpointed this this moment when he was away at boarding school and I don't even think he was being he was acting like that bad or that out of character he was just you know a teenager and kind of full on full of himself and, and acting his age and his mom was like well watch out you know the the pride comes before the fall basically and you know shortly after he had the the injury during baseball and he really kind of took took a step back and reassessed himself at that point when she has the mother intuition of knowing something would happen just because she has that sort of bond, what did you learn about their bond between themselves? Because she's been so prevalent in his life now that he's a pro. I think the, the thing that makes their relationship and what's made it so, so strong throughout the years is that basketball hasn't been at the forefront of, of their relationship. She's been somebody who's been self-sufficient her whole life and she wasn't going to have basketball define either of her children's or basketball or sports define either of her children's lives so donovan kind of made that that the point you know it's almost like I, I think in his mindset if he's just a good basketball player and that's all he was in life he would be disappointed with himself because he feels like he has the capacity to do more and i feel like that's a trait that nicole passed down to him 
we, we experience him daily talking to him. What was your experience just talking to him and how you were able to relate to him? Well, I mean, I've, I've covered the NBA for more than a decade now, and you can probably imagine how many people have, have thanked me for coming out to write stories on them, right? <laughs> it just doesn't happen too often. And, and with Donovan, I think at one point I was like, man, stop thanking me for coming out here to, to write this story. And he was like, he was like, man, there's 450 pl- other players in the, this league that you could have written about. So, man, I, I just appreciate it. And, you know, the, you just don't hear NBA players say that. So, so that was, uh, and then that's the, that's the other thing, you know, it, it may sound like it's a little bit, of an act, right? But then, as I'm sure you know, and as I, you know, talk to countless other people around the organization, that's that's just him. He's just that type of person. The other anecdote that stuck out was Dennis Lindsay trying to rattle him during his rookie interview, and he was unflappable in that. What did the Jazz front office have to say about Donovan Mitchell? Well, I mean, I think it's the thing that I said a, a little bit earlier in the fact that he's you know, such a genuine guy that you wonder, you know, whether he's going to stop the act eventually. And then you just get to know that, no, that's, that's just Donovan. So I think during his initial pre-draft interview, you know, Dennis, Dennis Lindsay was like, the guys who come in with character issues, they're, they're easier marks, you know, whether they're lying or telling the truth, you can kind of spot it pretty easily. But with somebody like Donovan, who was kind of unwavering even when he was trying to rattle him or get under his skin he was a little bit more difficult to figure out until he got to to know him better and it's just like no that's just Donovan what did you make of the Jazz's additions in the offseason I've heard you once refer to Mike Conley as one of the more relatable NBA players out there I know that's I think I told Dennis Lindsay I was like you you have the nicest backcourt in the league (laughs) between (laughs) between Donovan and, and Mike Conley Jr. um I know you guys are just getting to know Mike out there, but he's been one of my uh, favorite guys to to interview and deal with for a while just because he's such a humble person. And I think that backcourt is going to be really, really great. I think it's going to take some time to coalesce. We're we're watching Mike kind of go through the assimilation process, but you got to give him – I think you have to give him a little bit of time. He's been with one franchise his his whole entire career for, for more than a decade. And but I do think it's it's going to work. I think that they're too talented of a combination for it not to work. And then beyond, you know, Mike Conley Jr. I like the I like the additions. Um, I just think it's going to take time to time to coalesce. And if they can win ugly games like how they beat Phoenix uh, last night, you know, it'll be a, a great attribute for them going forward. And they won that ugly. They definitely did. Uh, Sixty some <laughs> odd free throws in that game. Who are some other teams that you're looking at out west as teams that could contend for the West Finals and and beyond? Oh my goodness! I'm I mean, you know, it's like it's like it's basketball again, right? The last five seasons, it's been you know Golden State, Golden State, Golden State, and you just know before the season starts that they're probably going to end up in the championship. So to me, it's refreshing to have this this wide of a door open. You know, I, I like the Clippers so far. You'll have to, you can't imagine them getting any, any worse by the time Paul George comes back. So I like them. I like Denver. I like Utah. I like Portland. Um, I'm still watching Houston to see how that Westbrook-Harden pairing uh, goes forward. I think there's just a, a lot of good basketball to, to just, you know, nothing set in stone. And I think that's the way sports should be. What have you made of the transformation that the Clippers have had? You know, in, in Brian Curtis's, 
ringer, uh, LA is the NBA landscape. This was a beat that was overlooked. Sometimes uh, Clippers front office members would call the newspapers and they'd ask, why aren't we on the front page? And the editor would say, the story wasn't written well enough to be on the front page. So what have you made as a former Clippers beat writer of that transformation that they've undergone? Well, it's it's a big transformation, and it's been a transformation long in the making. I think the initial shift happened once they, they got the first pick and was able to get Blake Griffin, and they convinced Baron Davis uh, back in the day when he was still a marquee point guard to sign as a free agent. So this transition, it's, it's been happening for a while, but to get to the point where they are now as a championship contender, I think it's a influence of, of having an owner who players get along with who's really enthusiastic about the game and Steve Ballmer. It's about having a player's coach and, and Doc Rivers and it is about being in, in Los Angeles and and you know they have a beautiful training facility where a lot of guys train at during the summer and you know I, I grew up in LA so it's it's funny to me but on the other hand it's they they can win so many championships but they'll never be a It'll always be a Lakers town. What are some of those examples of it just being completely Lakers, even if the Clippers are, are making these gains? Well, I mean, I I think Kawhi was at a football game, right? I think he was at a, a, a Chargers or Rams game in L.A., and they put him on the big screen, and they booed him. <laughs> and they booed him not because he had signed with the Clippers necessarily, but because he had signed with the Clippers and therefore bypass joining the Lakers. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty, pretty solid, you know, sample size of evidence that, that people's loyalties are going to lie with the Lakers in, in Los Angeles. Looking at the East, who are some of the teams that you're looking for out of the Eastern Conference? I mean, I think we're looking to see how the, the changes will take place with Kimball Walker joining Boston, with Al Horford going to Philadelphia. And, you know, I still... I still think the Pacers have a pretty solid roster overall. Not that I think they'll be a candidate to repeat, but I do think they can win a playoff series uh, coming this postseason. And yeah, you know, maybe not as wide open as the Western Conference, but there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation out of the Eastern Conference as well. So I just you know really love that the NBA is so wide open these days. League wide issue now since you wrote Boys Among Men. Uh, a phenomenal basketball book. What have you made about the attitude shifting from the league when it comes on one-and-done players and and even with the California's bill on, on name and likeness? Yeah, I mean, I, I like it. I think that players should be compensated when they're ready to become professionals, and you don't want to delay a guy like LeBron James or, you know, LeBron bring it more to modern terms Zion Williamson should have been in the NBA last year or Ben Simmons shouldn't have had to gone to college for a year there's there's some guys who are just ready to be professionals when they're when they're 18 and when they're just out of high school and I think other guys can find other routes that that suit them better whether it's going to the G League for a year or playing overseas for a year but definitely they should be getting paid for their talents and they should be able to to be professionals and you know back when Back among the first first wave of high school, the NBA guys, a lot of those guys, I would say even more so than the players, the franchises weren't ready for high school players, right? They didn't have programs in place for them. They didn't really have staff dedicated to helping them with their acclimation. I remember Tyson Chandler 
told me that once the Bulls got him out of high school, it was basically like, here you go. Okay, now you're you're a pro, and you just have all this money, all this time, and you never really had a financial plan or anything to do with it. Now teams are smarter. They have people in place to help people make those acclimations, find find a place to live, um, help get your financials in order, you know, almost walk you through every step. And I do think the players come much more prepared to be you know, NBA players today. Um, these the players have been dealing with press, it seems, probably since they were in sixth, seventh grade and a lot better all around. And, you know, I think that both sides will be better equipped this time around once players are allowed to come back into the league out of high school again. I mean, college isn't for everyone. It's a good step towards becoming an adult where you can kind of cosplay as being an adult but have little responsibility, so it's good in that respect. And that's where I understand how back then it was probably a better option for some to go to college before going to the NBA, but it's gotten so professionalized now where all these AAU tor- tournaments or any any of the, the times where from then on I've heard players say, yeah, since I've left my hometown and gone to a prep school, that's when I started becoming a, a pro when people were starting to ask about me and when, when I'm doing more interviews on, on, the, on the daily, something that I don't think that you necessarily had during that first wave. Back, back in that first wave, teams were almost sometimes drafting players from high school without even doing much research on them. They maybe <laughs> saw them at, at one or two workouts when now you're going to be a, you know, familiar with the top prospects since they were in junior high school for the most part. You know, we've seen like LeBron James' son, Bronny. We've seen him for years. We're going to see – we saw Zion for years before, you know, he ever got to the Pelicans. So I think just both sides are going to be so much more – professional i think players are entering the league more professional these days and teams are much more equipped because they realize the type of investments they're making in the, these players and you know it's 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 for their sake that these players do good because jobs are are at stake so you you don't want to be taking players that you've never seen or haven't done that much research on but you also don't want to be the team that's you know the the 13 teams that pass up on kobe bryant in his draft the thing that I, I really crystallized for me reading Boys Among Men is that many of these players, I'm sure you got tired of it, labeled bust, when they go on to have long-standing careers. C.J. Miles drafted by the Jazz as part of that last wave before the rule got instituted. He's still playing in the league. Were you tired with the, the label that some pundits were giving to these high school players of, of bust, even though these guys went on to have successful NBA careers. You know, I forgot that CJ got drafted by Utah. He did in the second round. It it feels like a lifetime ago. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I just felt like it was a cop out. Right. And it was like lazy reporting for people who, who wanted to kind of hold the league's water and not do any type of research on their own. It was kind of the refrain was that, Oh, for every Tracy McGrady or Kobe Bryant, there's a Lenny cook or somebody who, washed out of the league before even making a dent and they could have gotten some type of free college education at the very least when it's like, no, that's, that's not the case. There's guys on this up, upper echelon, guys like LeBron and Kobe and Kevin Garnett and Tracy McGrady who became like the league's greatest faces and, and superstars and were able to transition into the league a lot sooner because of this rule. But there's also 
a second level of players, guys like Rashard Lewis and Al Harrington. And, you know, you could throw somebody like J.R. Smith in there, guys who, you know, maybe they weren't superstars, but they developed into really, really dependable NBA players. And they played in the NBA for more than a decade when the, the average career is three or four years. So they were still way above average. Even somebody like Kwame Brown nearly played in the NBA for, for an entire decade. So, you know, to me, it's just, just a cop-out because the numbers don't really reflect this great number of busts versus guys who were at the very least solid, dependable NBA players for a very long time. What made KG so interesting? <laughs> that was my favorite. Every KG story was my favorite part. I know. It's just like I've, I've never heard or listened to a, a KG anecdote that wasn't like hilarious. He's just a different type of person. So I think he came into the NBA as a different type of person and, and, you know, found that organization in Minnesota that was really good for him at such a young age in his career. And, you know, if you look at KG, he's the one who really got this wave of, of guys skipping, skipping college going to, to pave the way for guys like Tracy McGrady and LeBron and, and Kobe Bryant. And I think KG was really cognizant of the fact that had he gone to a college, the college would, you know, make money off of his likeness and his athletic ability where he wouldn't have. He's superstitious. He keeps the the two dollar bill in his shoe. I mean, he was an amazing, an amazing figure that this league had, and one of the many figures that make it so colorful and awesome. Before I let you go, a podcast admission because I, I feel like I, I should admit this to someone who wrote the book on the wire. It's one of those shows that I pretend to watch when people bring Don't it up. Say it. I just never have been that guy. I'm too young. I was 25. I I didn't get it when it was at its peak. So Jonathan Abrams, since he wrote the book, sell me on the wire. Why should I watch it? So the thing that the thing that's great about the wire is I swear that that show has not aged at all. Okay, it's still really relevant right now, and I feel like it'll be relevant for a very long time as long as a lot of the systemic uh, systemic issues that it addressed aren't being completely answered so it's one of those slow burn type of shows right where if you watch the first two or three episodes you're going to be wondering what in the world is going on and you just got to stick with it to like the fourth or fifth episode and this just insanely rich detailed world comes together where you know i've probably seen that show like 10 times now and every single watch you you just find something new that you didn't you didn't know existed earlier you just pick up new and new things and i swear that every every word of every sentence spoken on that show like leads to something that has purpose and has meaning and you know i cannot recommend that show enough you got to get on that next time i talk to you you're gonna have to at least have started the show well i have started the show but i i have hit that wall i'm stuck on episode three like i have the hbo and and it says half watched episode three i just can't get through it that's what I'm saying. You break through that wall and okay. then you're not going to want to stop. All right. Maybe I haven't given enough enough time. I'll I'll give give it more and try another time and then I'll catch back up with you. You just need to like make like one evening and say, "Okay, all I'm going to do is get through these next couple of episodes and then you'll you'll thank me later." Push through it. Before we let you go, show description is the podcaster's welcome sign. So everywhere there's a a little description what would you like your podcast description to say? Let's do a jump shots over Tony Jones. Jonathan Abrams <laughs> of Leisure Report. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you.